All right. And now um, I, I have the pleasure of introducing Dr. Mike Sag for um, one of the uh, perhaps most uh, historically anticipated uh, moments in our course. Uh, it's the case presentations where he basically pimps all of the other faculty um, about what's going on uh, in, in cases in a very illustrative way. Uh, Dr. Sag is the Associate Dean for Global Health in the School of Medicine and Director of the University of Alabama, Birmingham Center for AIDS Research and Professor of Medicine in the Division of Infectious Disease there. He leads the Scenix Network. He uh, leads the, um, the CIFAR at UAB. He is the founding director of the 1917 HIV clinic there at University of Alabama, Birmingham. He's the co-PI of the NA Accord study and has been the, uh, on the executive committees of a number of other cohort groups. He served on numerous committees for the NIH over the years. Um, he also has published a memoir of his own experience in care and treatment of people living with HIV called Positive One Donors Encounter, uh, One Doctor's Encounters with Death, Life, and the U.S. Healthcare System, which I imagine we can all purchase on Amazon. <laughs> Dr. Zag. All right, it's time to have a, a little bit more fun here. I'm going to add some music to what we do as we go. These are case-based uh, questions that I basically poll the staff that I work with, uh, the physicians, nurse practitioners, et cetera, who, and say, what are the things that plague you in your daily practice in terms of knowing what to do? And I've tried to make the questions relate to that. Uh, these are my uh, conflicts. And we're going to go over starting initial therapy, what to start in essence, um, what do you do about weight gain? Uh, either our weight gain or the patient's weight gain, uh, how, what to do with, uh, 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 during pregnancy with antiretroviral therapy, how to manage a blip, uh, what to do at the discordant CD4 count, and uh, new to the presentation, uh, how to manage uh, the risk of anal carcinoma. So let's start with what regimen should I use? This is a 48-year-old man. Oh, did we introduce the panel, Dr. Benson? Uh, you've already met, who's our co-chair, Dr. Bidini. Oh, you know everybody. Never mind. Um, so it's the old... We know old... everybody. We've been introduced. Okay. Uh, his viral load's 280,000. CD4 count 64. Uh, genotype is wild type. Uh, no complicating medical conditions, normal renal functions. Okay to start therapy. So here are your options. Um you can read through them. The TXF is either TAF or TDF, and the XTC is either FTC or 3TC. So that kind of covers the waterfront. We can get into that a little bit as we go. Go ahead and read and vote. Hamilton. You said the price of my life. It's not a price that you're willing to pay. You cry. Jonathan Groff in the 2015 original Broadway cast recording of Hamilton. Yes, I'm guessing indeed. the song, not the answer. Right. <laughs> okay, so most people, 84%, have uh, gone with the fixed dose combination, including Victorious. Turn it over to the panel. Um, thoughts? It's hard to argue with that too strongly. 
Um, what about some of the other options? Um, would you start with the two pills with TXF and XTC um, and, and Dalutegravir? Roger? Let's take the extreme uh, option here. Uh, there is no new regimen being looked at that Dr. Curie presented that has three drugs. Yeah. Has the time That's the come? next question. <laughs> Seriously, hold on. Okay. <laughs> Can you tell us about Pepe? Yeah, we did not. Uh, but that's a key. Go ahead and elaborate if you like. Exactly. So, so, so then option three, the only, the, the reservations include what Dr. Curie just mentioned. Are we willing to, to uh, uh, overlook the possibility that that person might have hepatitis B before we have it tested? And what would be the cost of ignoring that uh, until we get that testing back in a week, in a, in a couple of weeks? And do people have any reservations about using a two-drug regimen in somebody with a viral load of 280,000 copies and a CD4 count of 65? Right. So, that's, so it, let's say the person is hepatitis B immune, has been vaccinated, doesn't have active disease, wild-type virus. Uh, could you use Dalutegravir 3TC right off the bat with a viral load that's 280,000? And generally, you could. Um, the CD4 count, there's not been a lot of data. That's really where the weak spot is in the data set. Most of the people with those two drugs, I, I imagine it would work. Personally, I might start with a three-drug regimen and then retreat. Uh, to two drugs. So this is someone, if you're going to go with Dalutegravir anyway, <clears throat> you might pick option two and then after they're controlled, then just right. segue over. That's so I, I see affirming nods from the panel <laughs> and the audience. I think also it's good to acknowledge what you might choose, but what's available, um, where in the setting you are in and the insurance and the, you know, what the co-pays are and other things like that, because it's, you know, I've been surprised um, that some of the fixed dose combina- the fixed dose combination two drug may be more expensive for the yeah. patient than the other options are. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and in our area, it's more expensive than the three drug combination with, you know, it's two pills with Dalia. Yeah. So that that's actually a great point. And what I'm also hearing is that sometimes when there's generic TDF and 3TC, that can be more expensive because there's discounts given that you can't imagine. And so knowing those nuances is crazy. And then the co-pays, it's, it's a mess out there. It's enough to make you want to write a book about it all. <laughs> just saying. All right. Actually, that I was very angry and wrote, just spilled it out in this book um, about stuff like that. All right. So knowing that Dr. Courier was going to be prepping you, now let's look to the future. And I had to throw a movie reference in because we're in L.A., uh, three years from now, can we advance? Uh, Mike, use the right hour on the keyboard if it's not working. Uh, yeah, I'm on it. Oops, oops, oops. All right. So it's basically the same guy. Um, that, so you see the history there, the same viral load CD4. But here are your options, including cabotegravir, rilpivirine every eight weeks, islatravir and linacaprevir sub-Q every six months a monoclonal antibody with either another monoclonal antibody or uh, albuberdad, which we didn't talk about, but it's basically a long-acting T20 kind of product. 
um, or just a B or, or some other option. Go ahead and vote. Whoops, didn't mean to. Let's go back to. Yeah, there we go. All right. It's both a movie and a and a Broadway show. Late nineteen sixties, Liza Minnelli in the movie Joel Gray. Rhymes with schmabaret. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually a great play. Um, all right, so we got. Oh, we dropped from eighty-five percent to forty-one percent. You have powerful influence. A lot of folks are excited about. Is Latrevere and Lena Caprevere. Um, Hopefully. I mean, assuming they work well together. We, we're in a data free zone. It's just kind of looking to the future a little bit. Um, Judy, I'll let you comment. Uh, how would you vote on this? Or, I mean, in the absence of data. Right. What I think we've all learned that it's very risky to try to predict the future. Um, but yeah, I think it's exciting that we might have all new mechanisms of action. But um, I think time will tell. We'll, we'll see. I, I don't know. Yeah. Okay. It just was a fun question. Yeah. We can move on. All right. Here's here's something that we do encounter. Uh, someone who's been diagnosed with HIV a while ago, but their viral load is undetectable. So this is a story of a 30-year-old guy diagnosed seven years ago, asymptomatic. The viral load has always been less than 50, but they checked the DNA, cellular DNA, and it was positive. So he's, as we say in the South, sure enough infected. Um, CD4 count's been stable uh, at over 800. Uh, genotype determined from the DNA is wild type. He's okay to start if you think it's the right thing to do. What would you do? Would you start therapy or not start therapy? Um, I lost my music. Go ahead and vote while I futz around here. Um, hmm. It was it was from Wicked. Uh, whoops! What is this feeling? And uh, the feeling is feeling kind of lost when the music doesn't work. Let's see what the vote shows. Oh, so most people would start, and only sixteen percent said fifteen percent said no. So, Rafi, what would you do here? Well, I, I was one of the maybes. Um, I, I think it's a conversation. Um, in my experience, these folks who are elite controllers don't often want to go on treatment. Um, uh, they don't really see an immediate benefit and it, it's a little bit difficult to argue with them definitively. Um, I think we have a little bit of data that suggests that elite controllers from 5308 by the ACTG um, had less inflammation uh, than people who weren't on treatment, but still not back to a level of immune quiescence associated with people not right. living with HIV, but it's very hard to be dogmatic about clinical outcomes associated with that. Right. I, I do think that the more we follow elite or controllers, many do lose control over time. Yeah. So that's perhaps an argument that you don't want to potentially um, develop ongoing viremia that could have adverse 
consequences for themselves or a sexual partner, um, with, you know, and miss that opportunity if they were to lose control. But I think it's a conversation to be had. Okay, Dr. Benson. So uh, I'm a little more aggressive, I think. I would have said yes. Mm-hmm. And part of that has to do with the results of 5308, which I was less optimistic about. And I'm starting to be more persuaded by the data that Roger discussed about the rate of non-communicable diseases and other organ system dysfunction over time in elite controllers right. who are not on antiretroviral therapy. In this young man is 30 years old. What if the rate of cardiovascular disease really is accelerated in the setting of elite control, even with lower rates of inflammation, they're still there. And could you prevent him from getting some bad outcome in the future? Again, we don't have firm data about that, but we have pretty good drugs that are really well tolerated. And I I would be a little more assertive about it, but obviously the conversation needs to be. I agree with you and the majority of the audience. And some of it goes back to these data uh, that the UCSF group, this is from Peter Hunt from a while ago, but basically you look at um, people who are untreated in terms of their uh, T cell activation and those who have HIV and who are on antiretroviral therapy, on antiretroviral therapy, it drops, but but it doesn't go to, to the same level as HIV uninfected individuals. And then you can look at the elite controllers specifically, and they're a little bit more activated than people even on antiretroviral therapy. So one way to, that I kind of think about it is to say that for to get an undetectable level in someone who's infected, the virus is sort of wanting to replicate. That's what it does. It, it wants to survive and replicate, sort of like most men think about that. <laughs> and, and so that's what it does. That's its job. And the immune system is dampening it down. But the question is, at what cost over time? And you mentioned cardiovascular. You mentioned what energy is it taking to keep that under control? Uh, is the first question. One hint that if you really are on the fence is you can look at the CD4 to CD8 ratio. And we haven't really looked at that much since the beginning of the epidemic for those of us who are around then. We used to pay attention to that a lot. But really, if if you divide those groups into quintiles of those who have the highest CD4 to CD8 ratios or the lowest, those who have the lowest CD4 to CD8 ratios do worse. And so if you have somebody who's got an undetectable virus, but a very high, a very low CD4 to CD8 ratio, I'd pull the trigger right away on that for that person. But I think I'd pretty much treat everyone. Can I just add one other thing, consideration yeah. and agree completely? It needs to be a conversation, but in a 30 year old, you know, I'm still hopeful that we will identify potential interventions for art free remission long-term or also known as a cure, but these are probably kind of people that are going to be more likely to respond to those kinds of things. And so the question is, you know, are, is there a benefit of trying to control the virus and give the immune system a little break to not be, you know, always uh, being very activated to do this. Um, And will that increase their chances of being able to control long-term? Right. I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe it's the worst thing to do, but I just think about that as another factor maybe. Yeah. And uh, let me bookmark the conversation for a little bit later in the talk um, about these functional, we'll call them functional cures where you're not eliminating like uh, the 
City of Hope patient uh, that Roger talked about. Okay, how to manage blips? We see those all the time, and I'm going to give you a little bit of a twist on it. So I'm going to create the same story for the same guy, and you get started like 84% of you suggested on Vic Taff FTC two years ago, and he's been doing great. He swears he never misses a dose. He's an accountant, right? He's very consequence-driven. He's not going to miss a dose as far as you can tell. And he can count his city for account. And his viral load his viral load keeps creeping upward, and you see those data there. So um, what do you think in this setting, the guy I just described, is the most likely um, cause? Is intermittent adherence, occult uh, rec- recreational drug use, um, taking a new multivitamin, de novo emergence of resistance or interference with a lab result by a Russian bot. <laughs> so that, that's a real possibility, perhaps. Dearest Darlingus, Momsy, and Popsicle. I found it. My dear father. There's been some confusion over Christian Chenoweth, original Broadway cast recording of Wicked. But of course, <laughs> I'll rise above it, for I know that's how you'd want me to resolve. Okay, here we are at Shiv. Yeah. yeah. That's the right answer. This is a real case. Those don't usually work very well in these settings, uh, but this one I think is important. Um, anybody want to lead a discussion yes, on this? Cations. Those cations. Cations in your yeah. multivitamin and your integrase inhibitor are not getting along in the, in the stomach, and so it may decrease the absorption. And I've seen this too. Yeah, so it's just a heads up. I mean, I think everybody in this audience is experienced that you know that every now and then you're going to see a little bit of a blip, a little bit. We'll get to another case like that. But this is not a blip. This is this is encroaching on the danger zone if we're going to quote Top Gun. Uh, And we're and, and it's and it's something that you need to pay attention. And he was so attentive. This guy was so consequence driven. Uh, that he kept calling once a week and saying, when am I going to repeat my last one? So look, I know you're not missing a dose, dude. He might even be doubling up, but it doesn't matter too much. Okay. This one's pitched right at Roger Bedimo. How should ARV weight gain be managed? And I say that because Roger's led a lot of the studies and is leading one of the studies about what to do about it. So we're going to look to him for the answer on this. So it's a 47-year-old lady who started the Big Taf FTC 12 months ago um, as her first regimen, had a great response, as you see. Since starting her current regimen, her weight's gone from 145 pounds to 171. So at this point, which would you do? Keep her on her current regimen. You can look through the options of going to another integrase, getting off of integrase, um, deravarine, for example, uh, you, what what uh, would you think to do here? Look, Betsy, I feel like it's a good time to set some ground rules in terms of what's going to happen between us tonight. Makes you think anything's going to happen between us. This is a you television show that's based on a brand new musical. If you get Apple TV, it's Smigadoon. Till I'm all right, I don't know how to turn this thing off. 
Okay. Uh-oh. Hello. I jumped ahead. <laughs> I'm not used to doing this myself. Oh, it's still ringing. Hello. I'm a, My name is Elder Price. All right, thanks, Elder I, Price. <laughs> Goodbye. Okay. Um, I'm going to share this most amazing book. Here we go. So most people want to stay the same. Roger, the floor is yours. Talk us through this. Yeah. And, In the and, microphone, please. So the the first thing I would do was before we start this treatment is owing that patient candor. Uh, first of all, that, you know, we know that some people gain weight. Um, we know that it's a minority of people. And we have some inkling of who is more likely than others to gain weight. Uh, uh, women, uh, non-white people. Sorry. We don't know how going to make you gain weight. And <laughs> it, we don't know much else beyond that. And, and that is what is dogging us in, in that, you know, the large majority of people will not gain weight. It's a minority that gain a lot. So if you look at average weight gain in studies, that just doesn't tell you a whole lot. Uh, we need to figure out pinpointing who does. So once that candle is, is acknowledged, and the person is still uh, in, uh, telling them that this is still the preferred regimen um, uh, per guidelines, and and they 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 they, st- they stay only when they gain weight. Another candle we owe them is that we don't know the efficacy or the reversibility of the weight they just gained. And so once you you if you're gonna make a change, you need to stand on some data. And I'm still waiting for that data to accrue and which is data on option uh, two here uh, that that we will look at what happens when you switch this person to a regimen that doesn't contain integrase inhibitors or TAF. Now, if that turns out to be something that would lead to uh, um, either stabilization or reversal of the weight gain, we win. So, uh, and then in your clinic, uh, uh, you may look at this and say, you're willing to do that. And uh, we all mavericks when you go to HIV medicine because we used to looking at things and making judgments based on what's already known and what is yet to be known. So let me show some data real quick. I'm going to come back with a follow-up question. So these are data, I think this was uh, uh, from Vanderbilt, I think, Um, and uh, what, what you can really focus on here is that the integrase inhibitors seem to have more weight gain than, for example, the NNRTIs. But what I th- and, and among the integrases on the right side of panel, dolutegravir seems a little bit more than RAL or um, uh, uh, EVG. Elvitegravir, um, we hadn't, hadn't used that in a while. Um, and Bictegravir probably is tracking along with dolutegravir in some way. The key thing to me is this first six to 12 months. I agree. That's when most of the weight gain happens. So if you block that out, weight gain kind of stabilizes. So I'm not going to come turn it back to you, Roger, and say, I, what is the mechanism for this? Yeah. I, if we I, understood that, we might know what to do. <laughs> so enlighten us. Yeah. I, and, and, and I would be uh, a lot happier if I did know. Now, one thing, however, I, I'm so glad you brought this up, that that – I look at the data and the, 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 the practices on switches. I say 
we are starting too late. It's not clear that the trajectory is still in the upwards when you remove what are blocked by those squares. So if whatever changes that led to the weight gain had already occurred at that point, I have no idea what purpose your intervention beyond that would mean. And that's, that's incredibly important before you analyze studies, even before you design studies, because if you're going to design studies like uh, that, where people's average um, exposure to the antiretroviral is three years before they switch, I have no idea what you're going to gain from that. And my it, uh, suggestion is that we do have at least with the integrase inhibitors, we already know that they penetrate into the adipose uh, uh, tissue more than other antiretrovirals. That's one thing we know for sure. And from uh, studies in Europe, we've seen that they probably do some uh, uh, alteration of the adipose uh, 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 stem cells. And this could be, just could be, a mechanism whereby they would lead to this gain weight because weight gain is the 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 the, the decrease in size of cells not necessarily the multiplication of cells right. and that is what happens. so we'll we'll learn i mean i, I think again the rafi and the studies you did with cavitegravir in non-hiv populations by definition for prep you didn't see as much weight gain with the integrase inhibitor correct in the phase two study, we didn't see any difference between placebo and cabotegravir, but in the one that compared cabotegravir to TDF-FTC, it was a very similar sort of phenomenon where there was a difference in the first year, actually, that was mostly driven by weight loss Hmm. on TDF-FTC. And then after that, it was really indistinguishable. Okay. Can I make one more comment too about the study Roger was referring to that's been trying to recruit people who are have gained weight on an integrase regimen that are randomized to stay or to switch to either TAF or TDF with Duraverine to see whether that switch makes any difference. And I do think because I, I think this weight gain is real, I think we should be thinking about preparing people for it. And also things that people can do in that first, you know, six months to year to maybe look at their net consumption exercise levels to try to mitigate it. I mean, we're all on this path of increasing weight over time as we get older. And this is just kind of jump starting it. In a, yeah. And so maybe doing a little more proactive ways to think about <clears throat> monitoring <clears throat> your intake and what you're eating might help. It, totally agree. It, it's, that's, it's, it's perfect advice. The, the difficulty is everyone here knows that when we're starting a regimen, we're going over all kinds of things. And oh, by the way, we'd mm-hmm. like you to start therapy. It's very important, but you're likely to gain weight. So while you're doing that, modify your diet and take care. I mean, it, it, it should be done. I think we try to do it, but boy, it complicates our usual message. It's just where we are. Okay. Some new information on um, uh, pregnant women, 30 year old lady comes in, she's newly diagnosed because she uh, was di- had just uh, developed. Uh, uh, she discovered she was pregnant, which she's excited about but she on prenatal screening was found to have HIV and there's her numbers. Uh, she's B5701 negative, wild type virus. I'll give you hepatitis B immune, uh, no prior therapies. This is her first pregnancy. 
And she's okay to start there. In fact, excited about it, but wants to know what to treat. So here are your choices. There are nine of them. The bottom one, number nine, is some other answer. Oh, and I, I messed up a little bit. Um, the one that says TDF FTC dalutegravir is followed by TAF FTC darunavir. Make that dalutegravir. So the two dalutegravirs at the bottom should be TAF versus TDF. So that that's important. I messed up on that. So ignore the darunavir and call that dalutegravir. Let's go ahead and vote. Atlantis Morissette musical immediately pre-pandemic, now closed, but here in L.A. Yeah, yeah I had tickets to see this um, for March uh, 23rd, uh, 2020, uh, didn't go so well. Uh, by the way, I had COVID at that time, so I probably shouldn't have gone, but anyway, the show is closed. Let's see what we got. Whoops. Why did that not show up? Whoops, 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 whoops. Can we bring up the result? Oh, there we go. Great. All right. So most people have gone with TDF FTC Dalutegravir and another. The next group is TAF FTC Dalutegravir. What's new? Impact. So yeah. So one thing that's new is a study that was done that compared Dalutegravir either with TDF um, and 3TC or TAF and 3TC compared to efavirenz, TDF and FTC. And this was done um, in sites in, in Africa. And what was surprising is that um, well, the, the efficacy of the dalutegravir regimens was was greater for virologic suppression than efavirenz. Um, the studies, because the they're so all the agents are so effective in reducing perinatal transmission, don't see a significant difference there. But the rate of adverse pregnancy outcomes was lowest in those who received TAF FTC compared to TDF 3TC, which I think surprised people. And the, the other thing that was really interesting about the study is that in, we think about excess weight gain, but in pregnancy, weight gain is really essential for successful pregnancy. And people who don't gain weight have more adverse pregnancy outcomes. And so there was a higher rate of ineffective weight gain in those on efavirenz TDF compared to the dalutegravir arms. So I think that um, while TAF, I'm not sure it's in the guidelines for use in pregnancy yet, um, there was some very encouraging data about actually lower rates of adverse pregnancy outcomes. Right. So just for those who sort of heard from a year and a half or two years ago that we don't want to use dalutegravir because of neural tube defects, We've gone beyond that. They have much more data now. And it's very similar for those of us who are around in the early 2000s with the Favorins. If you remember, that drug also was associated with neural tube defects. And the mechanism for both of them is, is kind of the same. It has to do with folate and a competition uh, in, the, in the developmental phase for that, that's messed up just a little bit. So if mom is a little bit folate deficient, uh, and is on a favorins or dalutegravir, there might is a more tendency for a neural tube problem. So at the prenatal visit, start them on folate just across the board, no matter what. But we aren't seeing it in the in the larger studies. And then this agreed, uh, we didn't know much about TAF, so 
a year plus ago, we didn't recommend it because there weren't data. Now there are data and it's, it's an approved drug and maybe, maybe it's falling into the preferred category now because of the study you mentioned. And then afavirenz is just fine. It's just if you don't have access to dalutegravir. The couple up here that are wrong, um, there's a few. Um, the COBE uh, is, is sort of not to be used during pregnancy if you can help it. And Bictegravir uh, doesn't have a lot of data, but I think the consensus, Connie, is that if they're already on Bictegravir, just continue it. Is that what they're saying? Yeah. Okay. Any other comments? Um, so it's a changing, the questions remain the same. The answers get modified over time. Yeah. And so the, this is where we were back in December, and I think it's now moved. It's still the same. TAF FTC or TAF 3TC with dolutegravir is kind of the preferred regimen. Yeah, but, I think raltegravir, there is more experience in the U.S. using that. But as you, as you say, both right. dolutegravirs. And the darunavir is fine if it's boosted with ritonavir, as is atazanavir. But I think the integrase inhibitor is really the way to go. So we have a lot of patients like this who would get referred to us, um, complicated regimen. 24 years ago, diagnosed with HIV, had a really high viral load and a low CD4 count, came under control well, had multiple regimens, and you see them up here. It's like a archaeological dig in the history of HIV with nofinavir <laughs> and D4T and lopinavir, ritonavir. But now is on dolutegravir, boosted darunavir, TAF and FTC. And we don't have any data on the historical resistance. He doesn't recall uh, a failing regimen. They just kept switching. So now what do you do? You know, stay the course, change wouldn't be prudent, uh, Herbert Walker Bush, or change to one of these other regimens. Go ahead and vote. And I'll see if I can come up with something. Hmm. No more Mr. Anonymous. No more world that is Nick Bottomless. My name will be synonymous with being on yeah. It's kind of a cute song. It's from a play uh, called Something Rotten. Um, <laughs> it's really clever. It just never really quite nailed it. Um, I liked it. I did too. Um, great cast. Tomatoes. It, was about, it was about the time of Shakespeare. And uh, uh, these two guys were trying, these playwrights were trying to compete, and they decided to compete. They were going to write a musical, which is, it was a heard of, heard of at the time. And anyway. Um, so most people would go to a fixed dose single tablet, but about a third of the audience, you know, wouldn't change. Roger, what would you do here? Yeah, so this this is the kind of patient that we have little data on. And uh, we have been extrapolating from data that we get from Africa mostly. Um, and in a slightly different patient population, um, with recent, uh, you know, data from uh, studies like Canadia and Secondhand, we know that the regimen that this person on uh, was on, I think it was Dolutegravir 
and two nukes and boosted Daruna here. I don't remember exactly what it was on. That that's what the pistol was on. Yeah. So so essentially, it was just as good switching people to a Dolutegravir plus two nukes as a Daruna V2 news, if they have previous failures or even if you don't know what they had failed. So these were robust enough that in that population that was already failing, if that was good enough, makes me comfortable with somebody who is now suppressed to know that even if they had K65, M184V, that they probably would do well with uh, an integrase and tunics. What if we knew he had a 3TC, uh, an M184V mutation? Would that change? That was it. Would you be okay switching to this regimen? Yeah. So, so in Nadia, half the people were, uh, had K65R, almost 80 to 90% had M184V. They switched to yeah. dolitegravir and to nukes, and they did fine. So I, I would probably be comfortable. I, I'm still scratching my head on M184V, it's an interesting mutation that I don't understand very well. Yeah, I um, we deal with this in clinic all the time. And it's so interesting that those of us who have been doing this longer are more conservative. And I think when integrase inhibitors came along, we just wanted to protect them so much and not take any chances in people who had other resistance. So it was kind of belt and suspenders of the boosted PI. And now you go back and you look and say, they really need to be on all those meds. And so it is, um, I, I do think that the data has emerged that there are people who will be just fine on the integrase inhibitor based regimen with a single tablet without the boosted PI, but we didn't know that at the time they got put on it. And so it's always individual about how the the patient feels about their regimen and whether they're having any side effects or problems too, but. Comments? Go ahead. You know, again, we're extrapolating a lot from older data in an area where we don't have much information. But when you look at the older studies, for example, of lopinavir, ritonavir, it had a very high barrier of resistance. And it was one of the options that people used when, especially in sub-Saharan Africa and India, when you ran out of all the nucleosides, people were using lopinavir, ritonavir monotherapy, and patients were doing okay. Um, and the same with dolutegravir, it's got a pretty high barrier to resistance. And even though he'd been on previous regimens with lopinavir, ritonavir, and then with, with dolutegravir, um, as he said, he didn't have any information about drug failure related to drug resistance. And given the fact that both of those had pretty high barriers to resistance, I think yeah. the likelihood that they had a really treatment-compromising res- resistance mutation to either of those drugs may be pretty low. So I think I would feel comfortable at least getting him off the darunavir ritonavir and getting him on a fixed-dose and, and that's combination. what I think is the new information over the last three years. That's the reason I threw this in, because... Five, six years ago, we would have probably said, no, 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 don't mess with it because we don't have anything. Now, I think with the strength of the integrase inhibitors and the points that were made by the panel, uh, I think it's fine to change to simplify. Watch them carefully, of course. You know, don't just send them off for six months to return. You know, follow the viral load. But um, 
Yeah. So here's a different story. This is someone who's got persistently detectable viremia, but never, never went undetectable. So the story goes that this guy had a viral load initially of 936,000, a C4 kind of 70. Um, he got treated with a bunch of regimens. So he's, he's similar to the same guy. In fact, he's kind of identical, except that his viral load is persistently between 50 and 100, just stays there has done that for years. So outside of maybe simplifying the regimen, which isn't that complicated, um, what might you do? So would you change this therapy at this point in time? And the song here comes from a relatively obscure play, but it did win the Tony Award for Best Musical. Rafey didn't like that play. I, I didn't. Yes. So I did it just to irritate him. Um, <laughs> and it worked. Okay. So most over half would just uh, keep them along and, and some people would change. What would the panel do? Connie, what would you do in this setting? I'd probably continue with what he was on. There, not a whole lot of studies have, have evaluated this, but in again, the, many of them older, but showed that by trying to intensify therapy yep. in this setting or change therapy in this setting really didn't result in any much anything much different. And right. so, as long as he's clinically stable and doing fine, his CD4 count is fine. I probably wouldn't change it. And I think this is really a great place where we go back to biology. And so if you remember, this is kind of the, the replication cycle of the virus. And I'll try to walk you through it. But if you look at the top in the center of the turquoise, they spit out virus, which comes to the right side. You give antiretroviral therapy. All you're doing is preventing the uninfected cells from becoming infected. And that's really about 100% protection when the regimen's working well. If the regimen was partially active, you would get an, a, an overall increase in viral load, like we saw with the guy on the multivitamin. That's what happens when you're not getting complete protection. But this guy's been this way for years. So where's the virus coming from? The answer is up in the upper right-hand corner. Those reservoir chronically infected cells that are long-lived, that are a barrier to curing people, but for a bone marrow transplant, um, they sort of hover and they get stimulated periodically. And someone who had a very high viral load at baseline translates into the high likelihood that he has a large reservoir of cells that are infected. And these things just kind of spontaneously spit out virus, but it's not de novo replication. It's just that. And so you end up picking it up in your assay. But as, as Dr. Benson said, the antiretroviral therapy itself is not failing. It's doing its job. It's just the biology talking to us. So you reassure the patient that, you know, they might go to a cocktail party and feel badly that all of everybody around them or their friends on treatment are less than 20. They're doing just fine. And uh, they shouldn't sweat it too much. Now, the other story is someone who is on therapy, their viral load suppressed, but their CD4 count is not uh, going up. So we've all seen th these types of patients. So 
This is a lady who started on a boosted darunavir regimen. Um, the viral load came down nicely. Uh, the CD4 count only went up, uh, it barely doubled in four years. So she's tolerating the regimen well. What do you do here? Um, you can go ahead and look through these options and I'll play another Tony Award winning song. This play I'm pretty sure Rafi liked. Michael Mayer. More importantly, Leia Michelle, who starred in that, now starring in Funny Girl on Broadway. Go see that. <laughs> okay. I don't know how you guys do this. How do you remember the year? <laughs> Just you watch the Tony Awards every year. Okay. Continue her therapy. Um, anybody feel differently about that? Rafi, let's let you take this one since you're nailing all the Tony Awards. <laughs> I mean, I understand it causes a trend- tremendous amount of disquiet for patients to not have the CD4 count go up. But as long as the viral load is suppressed um, and they're tolerating it, I don't think there's anything else to do. You would like to see it come up above 200, of course, because you'd like there to be an inflection point um, with regard to risk for opportunistic infections. But if you look at the data, even even with CD4 counts that would be otherwise in a range to be at risk for opportunistic infections with an injectable viral load, it's virtually unheard of. Yeah, and that, that issue comes up. Just had this in clinic yesterday. <clears throat> people like this who are on Bactrim <clears throat> for PCP prophylaxis. At some point, the Bactrim might be contributing to their lymphopenia, and so stopping it and can have a little bit of a of, of a benefit. But it is it is. Yeah, I was just going to make two comments, just similar to the previous case. There are older studies that showed patients with discordant CD4 counts but full suppression of viral replication, as least as we could measure it, saw no benefit to intensification of therapy or changing therapy in an effort to try and boost that CD4 cell count. And I think this just represents a patient population that had substantial depletion and may take a long while to recover. And I was involved in a study, also an older study now, that uh, looked at six years of follow-up from the alert protocol on this patient population, fully suppressed in plasma, but discordant CD4 count result. And there was a very clear general increase. And there were quartiles, I think, as you described, but the lowest people took longer and never got back to normal, but they did go up over time. And some of them taking six to 10 years to get a CD4 count up above 200. But as long as they were virally suppressed, they eventually got there. Right. So let me, let me review those data real quickly. So this is the ideal, right? You start therapy, the viral load plummets in the lower half, and the CD4 count bumps tremendously. And that's what we usually see. I draw the dotted line there because most of that CD4 increases in the first six weeks, most of it, maybe eight weeks. In the case like we have here, the viral load goes down, but they miss that bump. They miss it. Now, there's controversy or there's argument. You can go either way about why they, that bump didn't happen. 
one of the thoughts that I have is that when the virus is replicating inside lymphoid tissue, which is where it replicates, there's elaboration of adhesion molecules, ICAM and VCAM, that trap cells, especially CD4 cells, in the lymphoid tissue. You stop the replication, the elaboration of the adhesion molecules drops precipitously, and the cells go back into the circulation where you can actually count them. So for whatever reason, the people that have this response weren't, didn't either have disruption of their lymphoid architecture, whatever reason, probably more advanced disease, as Connie mentioned. And the slope of the lines, if you look out to the right-hand side of this, you can see that the slopes after those six to 12 or three months, whatever, the slopes of the two lines are, are similar. And that's basically the replenishment, the natural replenishment of CD4s that can happen. The second take-home point of this, I think, gets to the idea that we were talking about with trim sulfur. There's one reason to stop it. It could be um, toxic. But the other thing is that it's really the virus that causes immune suppression. It's the virus that's evil. And so all these association studies that were done in the early 80s, Henry Mazur, others, um, Michael Gottlieb here in L.A., a lot of the studies looking at what's the relative risk of an OI based on a CD4 count, that was almost always in the setting of high viral load. When you suppress the virus, the immune deficiency improves dramatically, such that how many times have you seen a patient with a low CD4 count and suppressed viral load after eight months who developed de novo MAC or CMV? You don't see it. Because the immune system, because the virus is suppressed, despite the CD4 count. So CD4 counts are just an epidemiologic marker in the setting of a high viral load, and that's what we're used to. Once you get to a suppressed viral load, it's a new game, and those epidemiologic concepts kind of fade, and you focus on the biology. And CD4 count does not equal CD4 function. That's a really key point. The function is impaired mostly by replicating virus, gumming up the works, as you want to describe it that way. So that was the key point. I'd leave them alone. Uh, the prophylaxis story has been answered, especially for PCP. If, they've, if they're in between 100 and 200 with suppressed viral load for, what is it, eight months, a year, then you can safely stop the pro. And the OI guidelines has all that in it. Last case is about anal dysplasia. So this is a 35-year-old MSM who you're following, 10 years ago diagnosed, Viral load suppressed, CD4 count good on BICTAF FTC, um, has a history of receptive anal intercourse. Anal PAP is abnormal and is referred for high-resolution anoscopy. Uh, is noted to have HSIL. So the question is, what do you do about this? Do you treat the lesion by electrocautery? Do you just monitor and have them come back? Uh, and do high-resolution anoscopy in six months, or you're not sure, go ahead and vote. I didn't cue any music, so you can just imagine your favorite Broadway show and sum it to yourself as you vote. Or a movie. Balance Raise of the Lost Ark, whatever you go. Oh, well, here we go. I got dueling cell phones. What was that? Andrew Lloyd Webber's new musical that closed in London before it came to New York, oh. Cinderella. Yeah, we've all heard of that one. What? I <laughs> right, see what we got. All right, so we're going to treat the lesion. And I think most everybody, um, 
Ron, I may ask you, if you don't mind, to maybe come get a microphone, because you were integrally involved with the design of this study. If we can maybe uh, get a microphone to Dr. Mitsuyasa. Well, but there's people online uh, who would want to hear from you. Here we go. Okay, thank you. Well, I, I think most people are now fully aware of the Inker study, which was a randomized prospective uh, study that the, was conducted by the AIDS Malignancy Consortium uh, designed to determine whether, in fact, identifying individuals with uh, high-grade anal dysplasia and treating them in some fashion would make a difference in terms of outcome uh, of anal cancer. And uh, it was a large study. It was about, uh, I think we, we, we tried to enroll a total of 5,000 individuals and got pretty close. Um, but after about four years, it was very clear that there was a statistically significant difference um, favoring the group that did get um, treatment for their anal dysplasia. Um, and... Uh, and and it was quite profound. I mean, it wasn't subtle. <laughs> yeah, there are the data. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and as a result of that, I think um, our group certainly, and I think uh, perhaps soon the NCI will recommend that individuals, certainly with HIV, who have high grade dysplasia, should be uh, both uh, should be screened, but then treated if they have high grade dysplasia. Yeah. And I think the the bigger question is going to be. Um, should we be screening everyone? <laughs> yeah. Uh, or perhaps even those, uh, or, or certainly those who have HPV infection, but perhaps everyone um, uh, with uh, uh, screening anoscopies. So, so I think the take-home point is things have changed here as well. And there's no question that these data support what a lot of us suspected was the right thing to do but now we have data that confirms it. What are the issues? Well, I think anybody who's got any kind of uh, inter-epithelial uh, lesions that are beyond ASCUS, um, they should be referred, whether, whatever grade it is. Just send them on and get an endoscopy and removal of a lesion. That, that'll reduce cancer rates dramatically, but do it now. Um, the problem is that a lot of our centers don't have ready access to someone who can do anoscopy. Um, and so, you know, for places that are academic medical centers or a place like Los Angeles, where there's a lot of GI doctors um, uh, or others who are GI surgeons who could do the anoscopy and follow up appropriately, if you're in a rural setting, you might not have that. And so it becomes problematic to do the right thing. Um, so, this is where I think we need to go with this. I, I, I don't know if you all have had experience. I mean, everybody here is from a major center. So, uh, Roger, what are you seeing in Dallas? Yeah, my, my experience is that if you live on the coast, you're very well aware of this and you're doing it. In the middle of the country where the rest of us reside, it's almost unheard of. You need uh, a pathologist also who can read the, the slide because it's not the same as cervical uh, pap smear and and so we're struggling to get this uh, uh implemented in in other places i think that the data uh thanks to uh dr misriasu and others so we we now have the data to to act on this but we're struggling yeah other comments 
Okay, that's just a, another bit of new data that we're trying to translate into our practices, and that's kind of what the point is of these case-based discussions. So we're at the end of them. Um, what we talked about was that antiretroviral therapy generally should be initiated with a strand transfer integrase inhibitor uh, as, the, as the anchor drug, no pun intended for the study. Um, watch out for divalent cations uh, that can interfere with absorption, as we learned that weight gain is going to happen with most people to some degree, and especially if they're on an integrase inhibitor and TAF as their first regimen, uh, having that discussion, monitoring, um, doing what you can until we have more information from ongoing studies. Dalutegravir, despite its rocky start uh, as being a relatively contraindicated drug, is now the drug of choice in pregnant women. Uh, and along with TAF, and I emphasize giving folate because of the biology. Simplification of a complex regimen is indeed doable, but the details matter, and so it's hard to generalize that, except to say that there's a lone uh, M184V, and you're going to be going to an integrase for the first time, especially don't sweat the M184V or M184I. Um, simplification, uh, sorry, viral blips are not failure, it's biology. Immunologic failure is not failure. It's biology too. <laughs> and screening for uh, all this, uh, the MSMs, and I would say uh, women could, should be screened as well um, as, as you're uh, doing uh, evaluations because they can get anal you know, cancer too. So that's it. Thank you very much, panel. Great job. Uh, we finished on time. And thanks to the organizers for inviting me. So just before we adjourn for lunch, which is actually scheduled to happen in 10 minutes, um, Dr. Sag, don't go anywhere. No. No. We have a number of questions from the oh. audience for you, Dr. Sag. Oh, Lord. <laughs> I was trying to escape. Wait, we, we, have, we have a couple of questions. I'm, uh, I'm going to summarize a couple together of, about um, two-drug therapy in general for um, uh, for treatment, uh, and in specific dolutegravir 3TC. And we had some people say, I'm leery of basically all two drug regimens, and I'm anxious about um, XTC as a second drug of a three drug regimen more globally. And other people who are saying they've had outstanding results with it, both in initial treatment and switch. Um, and so sort of how do you think about it? I think people who've been doing HIV care and treatment for a long time have a fair amount of anxiety about dolutegravir 3GC. And, and at least in my experience, sort of the younger kids are like, they're going on that bandwagon a little bit more, more easily. Well, there's a, there's a historical reason, right? Those of us who were around in the late 80s and early 90s, I see some folks nodding. Um, we went from monotherapy with AZT to dual therapy with AZT and D4T, which didn't make a lot of sense in retrospect, AZT, DDI. And those regimens pretty universally failed after 18 to 24 months with pretty profound um, TAM mutations, and, and they did poorly. So everyone got in their head, especially in the mid-90s, when three drug regimens, a triple drug cocktail, heart was discovered. And so it became almost like uh, indelibly tattooed on our frontal cortex that you got to use three drugs and at least two need to be really active. And that was true in 1996-97. As we moved along, I think the game changer was 2007-2008 when the strand transfer integrase inhibitors came along, 
which were in order of magnitude in general more potent. But alone, as monotherapy, you can get resistance. But if you give it a little bit of help with another active drug, it can work well. So I wouldn't feel comfortable with dolutegravir 3TC if there's an M184V mutation. That's not enough help. But if the patient is not hepatitis B uh, infected, and ideally that they're prevented, they have a vaccine and they're immune uh, to hepatitis B, there's no M184V or I, that is a fine regimen. And it's, it's, again, go back to biology, that little bar, antiretroviral therapy, preventing uninfected cells from becoming infected. You need enough for sure. The more robust in some ways, the better. But when it's robust enough, it's robust enough. In those situations, a dual regimen can work. It could also be dolutegravir ropivirine, assuming no resistance. Or uh, we're going to see probably as latrovir, maybe with lenacapravir. That should be potent. Those drugs, well, at least lenacapravir used alone, you can get resistance. But maybe with the two drugs, probably not. We'll have more data later. But so the concepts are still at play. It's just that we kind of are appropriately, um, we, our glasses are tinted based on our, our life experience. And our life experience, having done this for a long time, uh, tells us that two drugs back in the past with different drugs wasn't enough, but with these drugs probably is enough. Thanks for that perspective. Um, can we hearken back to the the hypothetical, or actually the real case that you told us about with um, someone who was taking a multivitamin that likely had divalent cations leading to low-level but progressive virologic breakthrough um, in that case, um, especially here in LA, people are very wedded to their nutritional supplements. Yeah. And so how do you counsel people if you suspect an interaction, but they're not willing to stop it? Yeah, they got to be careful. And that's a conversation that we need to have. I don't think any of us are anti-supplement unless we know for sure it's harmful, St. John's wort. Um, but, but, you know, you should ask the question, what, what does a supplement do that, are, that a really good diet doesn't? And a lot of people are taking extra vitamins that they're just literally pissing their money away because those vitamins, when they're not used, comes out in the urine and bye-bye. Um, so I think we need to have great conversations. We all know our patients. Well, ID, HIV, uh, uh, internists who do uh, family docs who do, in, who do HIV medicine are great at talking to patients. I mean, probably the prototypes for how students should learn. So having those conversations and explaining, you need to let me know everything you're taking because we need to screen for the presence of those things. Plus you could separate the time, right? I think that you can separate the interval between when they take the pill and when they take the vitamin to get around this too. It's mostly an absorption issue. Um, There can be at least theoretically a problem at the point where the integrase does its thing. In some ways it kind of needs the cation to work, but yeah, the absorption is the main thing. Um, when we were talking about preferred regimens in pregnancy, um, did you have thoughts particularly on someone who is diagnosed with acute or primary HIV during pregnancy and what an optimal regimen in that context might be? Yeah, I, I do have a strong feeling about that because we want to get the viral load down as fast as possible. And the drugs that do that are integrase inhibitors. 
hands down. So immediate therapy with an integrase inhibitor and whatever helps it. But that's an emergency of sorts. You want to get that viral load down, especially if it's occurring in the third trimester. Would you ever throw a fourth drug in um, out of concern that perhaps with a really high viral load, you might, like in millions, you might blow through integrase-based therapy? Some people would. I wouldn't because I think the the regimen's adequate enough uh, when you have a standard three-drug integrase. I mean, others on the panel may do something different, but uh, I, I'll harken back to a lot of the studies that Dr. Benson referred to. We did several where we tried to augment uh, antiretroviral therapy in the 90s with the fourth drug, and it did nothing extra. Once you blocked 100%, you block. Uh, and, and, you know, it's like in other antigen infectious diseases, you can only kill the bugs once, right? And so you can only block 100%. 110% doesn't give you anything more. Do you have any thoughts on differences between two drug regimens and three drug regimens with regard to inflammatory markers, T-cell activation, IL-6, other things? I don't know. Um, I don't know if you all know that. but yeah, I mean, I think we had hoped that you would see less, you know, you'd see reduced um, immune activation and, mar- and inflammatory markers on two versus three drugs, but I'm not aware of any any convincing data where that's been shown yet. I know people are looking at it, but it hasn't. Uh, no, at least that there are viral kinetic studies that have showed that the two drug regimen, I think uh, ACTG 5353 compared to the three drug dolotegravy uh, studies show the same slopes of, de- uh, of, of viral uh, decline at two weeks all the way to 24, 48 weeks. So if we think that persistence of a low-level viremia may be what's driving inflammation, that's probably be an indirect endorsement for that, but I don't know. Thank you. Um, we had a question about um, there having been a study that suggested that undetectable patients with a CD4 count in the 100-200 range do not benefit from pneumocystis prophylaxis, um, but those less than 100 may benefit. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, There's a study in CID around 2011. I think that's the only data that we have for that. Um, the, where they did the study and they showed that there was a reduction in overall pneumocystis incidence when somebody um, has their virus suppressed. But the CD4 count tended to have a few more cases if it was below 100 versus 100 to 200. So Generally speaking, now if the CD4 count remains below 100, you don't really start the clock for removing the PCP prophylaxis or PJP prophylaxis till it gets a little higher. And one last question uh, for for patients that aren't quite suppressed on orals for some reason, whether or not you've been able to identify what that might be. Any experience with using long-acting injectable therapy? I don't have that experience, but what it tells me, the most common reason that people are uh, experiencing regimen failure is that they're not taking their medicines. I mean, it's a funny thing in the, in the practice of medicine that drugs, if they're not taken, they don't tend to work. And so um, a drug not taken doesn't, not working is telling you that there's a problem, you know, you know, we've got a problem here. And so then an injectable may be helpful. Um, so the things to think about real quickly when there's antiretroviral regimen failure, 
someone taking the medicine, something interfering with absorption? Is there resistance? Is there some other biology at play? And usually that's kind of just a wastebasket thing, but you want to think about through all those things. You all do that every day. But if, if we think it is adherence, which it often is the case, um, you try to reinforce it, but an injectable might be the way to go in that setting. Of course, I spoke too quickly. We had one last question come in, and then I will not stand in the way of lunch. I promise. Um, some have said that integrase-associated weight gain might be related to a UTGP1 polymorphism, which metabolizes integrases. Are there any new data that you can share on that? No, but I think that's plausible. We'll find out, I guess, at some point. Uh, I know this. I, I will attest to this, that ever since integrase inhibitors came out and I started writing for them, I gained weight. <laughs> so I'm telling you, there's something, there's something magic going on here, and I don't like it. So, just All right. I think with that, with that, we'll we'll break for lunch. I'd like to thank all of our We're still speakers some weight <laughs> from uh, from the morning session, and thank you all for the great engagement and participation.